Lord, it is uh, so moving for us to recognize that the only reason that we have a place to stand in life and to stand before you is because of your great love for us. What a love and what a cost. Your selfless sacrifice opening the way, your death for our life. Glory be to you. Lord, as we now pause to open your word, we also pause to open up our hearts to you. And we pray that that costly love that you lived out for our sake would more and more become the pattern of the way that we relate to one another within the family of faith and the way that we interact with the world that you send us to around us. Make this so, Lord, by the work of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, at this point, our kids are invited to go uh, and have a great time continuing to learn together as we do the same thing as we open up the scriptures and learn together up here. Have a great time, kids. So just back to this um, glorious depiction of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Think about this. The local church is the place in this world, in this realm, where the inbreaking of the kingdom of God is experienced. The local church the place in this world where the inbreaking of the very realm of God is experienced in this world. If you and I live here on earth, but we have become citizens of that other realm, then this is what's true. More and more, the values and the virtues of that other realm will shape our dealings with one another here and now. Right? Doesn't that make sense? As we saw in the first three messages in this sermon series on Philippians, love is the first hallmark virtue of the kingdom. Love defines the way that we come together as the family of faith. It defines the way that we grow up together into spiritual maturity. And it defines the way that we go out into this world in the name of Jesus. Unity is the second hallmark virtue, as we learn from Rob in the passage that he explored with us at the end of chapter 1 last Sunday. And today we come to the third hallmark virtue of this fellowship of affection into which God has called us as his people, and that is the quality of humility. These hallmark virtues are our marks of citizenship. We were to, to claim that we were part of that other realm, and someone were to say, how, do I, how would I know that that was true? We ought to be able to point to these three things, our love, our unity, and our humility as proof. Our unity, as we're going to discover in an upcoming message, uh, 
on a portion of chapter two that comes later, our unity is key to our efforts to hold out the words of life in this world. In today's cancel culture, characterized by what we are against rather than what we are for, polarized and dividing into ever smaller camps and factions that are increasingly hostile towards one another. The unity that this world is meant to experience in the body of Christ when they encounter us will be baffling and without explanation from an earthly level, and it will be compelling and attractive. How do all of these people, how do all of these people who are so different, who come from such different backgrounds, have different levels of education, who, are, who come from different ethnicities, who have different perspectives on different cultural issues, how is it that they all get along? And not just get along, not just tolerate each other, but love each other. Our unity is evidence of another possibility. Our unity is evidence of that other realm. It is built on something deeper than our similarities or our differences. Our unity is defined by the person who defines us. Our unity is what gives credibility to our message about the love and power of Christ set loose and at work in this world. Without the love of Christ operative with, within our fellowship, we will never find that unity. And without the humility of Christ, we will never keep that unity. We will never be able to preserve it. So Paul addresses the interplay of love and unity and humility in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 2. Listen and see if you can begin to hear those threads, and then we'll walk back through it. Excuse me. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any koinonia, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or, or held on to for his own benefit. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself still further by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. You know me well enough to know uh, that this won't surprise you um, by now, but um, when I was actually climbing the ladder during the first service, I was thinking, so was the life of Jesus wrung from him or was it something that he offered up himself? Definitely the latter. Sorry, just to give you a little window into my um, interesting interior world. All right. So back to these eight verses. Let's just walk through our passage for today. 
Paul says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. By starting this sentence with the word if, it sounds like Paul is saying this may or may not actually be your experience. But Paul is just using a rhetorical device here. He isn't talking about a possibility. He is talking about a reality. He wants them to see that this is exactly what they already have in Christ. The living Jesus, part of, at the center of our life together. I am his and he is mine, as we sang earlier today. Isn't it incredible, Paul says, what God has done by his grace? Not just the gift of his amazing, welcoming love for us in Christ, but the gift also of an amazing community of believers through whom we experience the care and the encouragement of God. Well, since that's your experience, Paul is saying, we should already understand how important it is for us to relate in ways that reflect that love and preserve that unity. So let me just pause here before we go on. Uh, let me ask you, is that actually your experience of the Christian faith? Encouragement, comfort, cheer, tenderness, friendship, compassion. Because that is what Paul assumes is our experience if we're followers of Christ. And that's what God wants to be our experience as Christians. If you consider yourself a follower of Christ and that sort of, of warmth of encouragement and welcome and intimacy with God is not what you experience, then you may be more of a follower of the Christian religion than you are a follower of the person of Christ himself. A religion is always based on effort, but a relationship is always based on love. If you're wondering about uh, how this may define you and which one of these is more true of you, stay with us in this sermon series. During Easter week, both on Palm Sunday and then on Easter Sunday, we're going to be looking at a portion of chapter 3 in the book of Philippians where Paul unwraps the difference between a relationship that's based on my effort, I mean, excuse me, a religion that's based on my effort and a relationship that's based on Christ's work and effort. All right, so ponder that uh, and, and put that before the Lord and see where you are with that. All right, so picking up Paul's thread. Since we have had this amazing experience of the love of God and the love of the people of God, verse two, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Make my joy complete. Do you remember the other time that Paul talks about the joy that he finds in the Philippians? It's right at the very beginning of the letter, chapter one, verses four and five. It just tumbles out of his mouth as he starts writing. I find such joy in the partnership that we share together in Christ. And that moves me to thank God for you. But this is fascinating, I love this. In the very next line, in chapter 1, verse 6, he introduces another reason for the joy that he finds connected to the Philippians. And that is not just the progress they've already made in the faith, but the fact that God isn't done with them yet, and they are continuing to grow in Christ-likeness. He who began a good work in you, Paul says, will surely carry it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So that idea of Paul finding joy at the spiritual progress of the Philippians that comes through again and again and again in his prayer in verses 9 to 11, in the, the reason he talks about his wanting to come to be with him in verse 25. 
And then here in chapter two, verse two, Paul says that their spiritual progress is his joy. And because the progress that Paul prays for is progress along a path of maturity that God has laid out for us in the scripture, what Paul is really saying is the thing that brings Paul joy as he sees the people of God grow is actually the very thing that brings God joy when he sees that growth in us. So what is the specific step of faith that Paul is eager to see the Philippian church take? It's to grow in unity and in humility. So here, talking about unity, he's echoing the theme that he already introduced in chapter 1, verse 27. And then he picks that up and unfolds it in several different ways. Being like-minded, this doesn't mean just thinking in the same way that everybody else does in the church. It doesn't mean having identical thoughts about politics or viruses or vaccines or race relations or any other topic. It means having the same mindset, not thinking identical thoughts. Having the same love. As followers of Christ, we have the same first love, the same deepest foundational heart allegiance. Our shared devotion to Jesus shapes the things that matter most of all to us, the things that we value, the things that we put first together. And then Paul says we are to be one in spirit and of one mind. I love how the New Living Translation has put this, one in spirit and in purpose. I think it's really the best biblical definition of unity. For us to be one in spirit and in purpose. So what does that mean exactly? I have been blessed to be part of a writing group that is kind of centered up in Wheaton, been part of that for almost 10 years now, I was realizing. And one of the, the men in this group is a dear man named Walter Hansen. I actually asked him to come and preach this morning. He has served as a pastor uh, at one point in his uh, career. Well, it turns out that uh, Walter uh, wrote one of the most respected commentaries on the book of Philippians. He's an incredibly humble man. I found that out indirectly, but he didn't offer that up himself. I am so sorry that you don't have the privilege of having him preach rather than me this morning. But listen to what he writes uh, in his commentary about this one mind, one spirit, one love unity that Paul is calling us to. Walter writes, although the content of this one thing is not necessarily stated at this point, the entire letter to the Philippians asserts that Christ is the one common subject that unites and binds believers together. When Christians declare that to love is Christ, chapter 1, verse 21, when Christians together acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, chapter 2, verse 11. And when Christians together desire to know Christ above all other things, chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, then they will be of one mind because they will all be worshiping and serving together the one whom God exalted to the highest place, chapter 2, verse 9. Walter says, in other words, being like-minded and of one mind means more than simply being agreeable. It means agreeing together that Jesus Christ is Lord and submitting together to his lordship. 
So with that, Paul now shifts from unity that is supposed to characterize us as the people of God to humility that makes that unity possible. In the first part of verse 3, he talks about the two great threats to our unity as a church. And in the second part of verse 3, he talks about their opposites, the two things that will most strengthen our unity. Chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Probably a better way to translate selfish ambition is self-seeking. It means putting yourself, your needs, your interests, your agenda first. Originally, this word refers to a day laborer, to someone who hired himself out to, to do an odd job for a day and then be paid at the end of the day. Now, when you think about this, a day laborer doesn't care about the success of the project he's, that he's working on. He doesn't care about the business he's working on. He doesn't care about the employer he, that he's working under. He doesn't care about his fellow workers. He's just concerned about getting his pay at the end of the day. I'm not thinking about what I give. I'm thinking about what I get. Just like our word mercenary, the word came to refer to the things that I do with me in mind for my benefit with thought only of what I will get out of them. Look, it has to look this way, or it has to go this way, or it has to be seen this way. And if it doesn't, well, then you're going to hear about it. When that attitude dominates the heart, then inevitably it will surface in our relationships together, which is why this word was often associated with friction and strife and quarrelsomeness within the body of Christ. When we are self-seeking, that will inevitably erode the unity that we have as a family of faith. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, self-seeking, or vain conceit. So if selfish ambition, if self-seeking, is about how you think about things that matter to you, then vain conceit is how you feel about yourself. I am more important than you. I have a higher value than you do. I esteem myself above you. A great way to put this is self-importance. Evagrius, writing centuries ago, the first person to pull together a list of the seven deadly sins actually included this word on his list. It's unfortunate that it fell off of his list. And he writes that the temptation to vainglory is especially strong among the gifted. And I would just observe that we as a congregation are very gifted. I love this. Uh, Jerome Jerome's little uh, book, Three Men in a Boat, is a crack up. It's such a fun read. And in it, the narrator says, I said I'd pack. I rather pride myself on my packing. Packing is one of those many things that I feel I know more about than any other person living. It surprises me myself sometimes how many of these, these subjects there really are. I wish people would be not so pushy about their opinions and just realize that things should go my way and be seen my way. You can see how when self-importance rules our hearts, things like impatience and resentment, envy and competition, rivalry within the body of Christ will begin to surface. 
And when that happens, that too will threaten our unity. Self-seeking and self-importance. For the past several weeks, Sharon and I have been completely absorbed in moving Sharon's mom in to live with us in our home. And it has been such a joy. We've been looking forward to this for a long time, and we are so glad to finally have her under our roof. But what that has entailed has been a lot. It's meant emptying out our guest room and also the rec room adjoining our guest room, which has meant fixing all of that up, which has meant moving all of that stuff to other places in the rest of the back basement and also up into rooms upstairs in the rest of the house and out into the garage and some of those other things coming down into the, you kind of get the idea here. I don't think it's an exaggeration that I've gone up and down our steps carrying things 125 times in the last three weeks. Well, it would have to be 126 or 124, otherwise I'd still be in the basement right now, but you get what I'm talking about. Well, one of the things that I found happening about as many times as I have gone up and down the steps is at some level, a little part of me rising up and saying, well, now, wait a minute. What about me? I mean, this is my free time. What about how I want my day to go? What about how I want to be spending my time right now? Don't I matter? Aren't I important? Self-seeking and self-importance. Apart from the gracious intervention of God, that's what naturally wells up in every single one of us. But Paul calls us to a different sort of response. In fact, to just the opposite response. The second half of verse three. Rather, Paul writes, in humility, value others above yourselves. Rather than being self-seeking, we are called to humility, which could be defined as just being other-centered. Rather than looking out for ourselves, our focus is centered on others. And our heart's, is, our heart's desire is to respond to their needs and their concerns. In the end, this quality of humility is really about just looking past ourselves rather than focusing on ourselves. The eyes of the humble of heart are not on the self at, at all. Humility of heart is the self-forgetfulness that remains after I lay down my self-importance and turn my eyes up to God where they belong and out to others where they also belong. So, humility, rather than self-seeking, and rather than self-importance, we are called to value others above ourselves. This is the opposite of self-importance. Letting the regard that I have for you exceed the regard that I have for myself. Other-centeredness in place of self-seeking, elevating others instead of elevating ourselves. And then in verse 4, Paul just restates all this. He sums it all up again, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So as citizens of that other realm, this is the way that God intends us to go through this life in this world. No longer preoccupied by our, by our own interests and no longer full of self-importance, which is where we all start apart from Christ, but looking past ourselves and being attentive to the needs and the interests of others. Love unites us, but humility is the only thing that can keep us united. 
Martin Buber was a Jewish philosopher who wrote a book that has been incredibly influential in the almost 100 years since he wrote it. It's called I and Thou. I finally, after 30 years after having uh, heard about it all those years ago, I finally have been wading my way slowly through it. In his book, Martin describes two different ways of relating to each other. In the first, which he calls I-it relationships, we see the other person as a something, as something to get something from, something to benefit from, or something to steer around because it might cost me. In the second, in I-you relationships, we see the other person as a someone, as a person, beautiful, created in the image of God and worthy of our value, of our esteem, apart from anything that we might get from them and apart from any consideration of what we may be asked to give to them. When we are marked by self-seeking and self-importance, the only kind of relationships that we have are I-it relationships. Everybody becomes a something. But when we are touched by the love of God, then we put on display that alternate universe of which we ourselves have become citizens. We become characterized by a sort of other-centeredness and a high regard for others that God calls us to and which he is forming in us as his people by his spirit. So, a thought experiment. I want you, sitting right where you are here this morning, I want you to imagine an encounter between two people up here on the platform. I want you to imagine each of them wearing a GoPro video camera on their foreheads. And you have in your hands a monitor and you have a switch. And as they walk towards each other and come into this interaction, you can flip the switch and you can see the conversation first from this person's perspective and then, for, then from this other person's perspective. And you can switch back and forth. Now I want you to imagine something a little different. Take one of those people off the platform and put yourself in their place. Imagine you in that interaction with some other person arriving at the same moment in the same place. You think about it, you realize, don't you, how impossible it is for us to switch over and see that encounter from the other person's perspective, at least left to our own devices. The only way we can see that encounter is through our own eyes and through our own needs and through our own desires and through our own self-importance, unless the Spirit of God intervenes, and he does. The work of grace that God is doing in each of our hearts as followers of Christ is to give us the capacity to flip a switch and to be able to see an encounter that we have with someone else, not as one where they are walking into our lives, but we are walking into their lives. And the way that, that we, we learn to discover where that switch is and become more and more adept at flipping that switch in our interactions with each other is when we regularly offer a prayer in which we ask Jesus to form in us his likeness, to make us like him. I think it's fascinating that the first nickname given by the rest of the world to Christians was Christian, which means little Christ. A great prayer for us to pray every day and often through the day. Jesus, make me a little Christ. 
So why should we live in this sort of costly, self-sacrificial way, laying down our own self-concern and our own self-importance? Well, Paul doesn't leave us guessing why. We should live that way, he says in verse 1, you may remember, out of gratitude, out of overwhelming gratitude because of what we already have in Christ, because of the living and loving presence of Christ in our lives and the way that we are blessed to experience that lived out in the, in the family of faith, in the body of Christ. We should also live that way, Paul will say in verses 5 to 8, because of the example of Christ, because of the way that he emptied himself of his divine stature, of his self-importance. And he became like one of us, coming on a rescue mission on our behalf in which he honored us and loved us to the very end at the expense of his own life. As God with us, Jesus had every right and every reason to push his needs forward and to put himself first. With what self-forgetfulness and self-sacrifice Jesus loved us. Father, not my will, but your will be done. I am awed and I am challenged and I am unsettled to discover that God means for those same qualities of self-forgetfulness and self-sacrifice to characterize me. The Bible is unequivocal on this. Paul tells us that we are to become like Christ in our heart's orientation toward one another. Our attitude is to mirror his. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or, or held onto or insisted upon. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself still further. And he became obedient to death, even death, on a cross. This doesn't come about through an effort of the will, by driving ourselves to become what we aren't. This comes about only as we say yes, as we cooperate and continue to cooperate with the good work that God has already begun in us by his spirit and will carry through to completion. Every time I carried one of those things down those steps, down the ladder, one of the things that I discovered was that over time, as I invited God into that, that shifted from being a burden to being a joy, from being a cost to being a privilege. As God gave me the mind of Christ for that moment. In Hebrews, it talks about the joy with which Jesus laid down his life. He invites us to taste that same joy as we lay down our lives for one another. I want to encourage you to ask God to give you one opportunity every day this week to come into a moment with another person, not looking at it through the perspective of your own eyes and your own needs and your own self-importance, but from the perspective of that other person and their needs and their desires and their struggles. Just as we found Jesus with his arms open wide to meet us, welcoming us, pray that Jesus by his spirit would form that same sort of self-forgetful, self-sacrificial love in us so that we, as we encounter one another, so that we, as we go out into this world, 
we might welcome one another in that same, what a love, what a cost. Pray with me. Jesus, our Savior and our example, what the Spirit of God empowered you to do, laying down your life for us, that that you might be a place of welcome for us. We pray that you would send the Spirit of God to empower us to do with one another. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King.